0: If you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. And I'm excited to be back with you after being gone for a few weeks. It's good to be back with my family. I missed you guys. John 18, 28. We have been journeying through the gospel of John for almost two years now, off and on. And we've come to a pivotal moment. Uh, Jesus is currently under arrest. He was arrested by Jewish and Roman authorities. The last time we were together, Jesus was standing under trial before the high priest. And what we saw is that John clearly shows that actually Jesus is the true high priest. And what we've got to watch as we continue to watch John's narrative unfold is now Jesus is moving from being under Jewish authority in a Jewish trial to being under Roman authority in a Roman trial. Just to give you a little background here, the time in which Jesus was living was a time in which the Romans ruled the known world. In fact, they were under an emperor, a Caesar, who basically had autocratic rule over 60-plus million people. One of the groups of people that were under Roman control were the people of Judea, the people of the Jews of whom Jesus was born and where Jesus lived most of his life. And so when we say that Jesus is going to face a Roman trial, what we need to recognize is at this moment in time, These Romans have complete and total control. The Caesar is the closest thing to a king that existed in this particular period of time. The question John is going to put forward to you and me today is this simple question Who really is the true king? If the last time we were in the Gospel of John is who's the high priest. Now John's asking, "Who is the true king? Is it the Romans? Is it their Caesar represented by Pilate in this story? Or is it someone else? I want to show you from the Word of God this morning who the true king really is and why that matters for our lives. Would you please stand to your feet with me as we honor the reading of God's word, John chapter 18, starting in verses 28, verse 28, and going down through verse 40. John eighteen twenty eight. we read these words. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you please pray with me, church? Oh, God, we're stilling our hearts before you because what we're asking right now is for you to speak to us. God, I pray that you would remove distractions from our minds and our hearts and that you would take your word, Holy Spirit, and press it deep into the hearts of every person listening to this. And Lord, as you speak to us, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, Father, would you help us be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. This account begins with a Roman trial, Roman trial. Once Jesus has brought before Pilate, he's brought to the steps of Pilate's palace in Jerusalem, I actually stood there about a week ago. I stood at the very spot where this happened, where Pilate stood, and the Jews brought Jesus bound before them to Pilate. And when you read in your Bibles in verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? This is a formal beginning to a Roman trial. The proceedings are officially now underway. Because what Pilate wants to know is, you've got this guy bound in chains, or whatever he's bound with rope, and he's coming here. You obviously have a problem with him. What's the deal? What charge do you bring against this man? And interestingly enough, the Jews respond very indignantly. They don't respond with the respect of what you would think to hear from people who are being controlled or ruled by the Romans. Listen to how they respond in verse 30. Listen to the indignation. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They dodge the question a little bit. They say, look, we wouldn't have brought this guy if he wasn't causing a problem. Pilate, the consummate politician, tries to pivot politically. He tries to push the blame on someone else, and he says, well, listen, go judge this guy by your own laws. And then the Jews, who have Jesus bound, have to turn over an important card that they're holding close to the vest. Look at verse 31. They said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. You see, in that moment, they just upped the ante a good bit, because what they're communicating to Pilate is what this guy has done in our eyes, is serious enough to warrant capital punishment. We want him dead. Now, what you and I need to notice is behind the scenes, there's something going on here. The Jews are trying to use Pilate. They want Pilate to get rid of Jesus in a very official and public way. They don't want Jesus stoned by a mob someplace in a faraway place that can't be seen or that's somehow unofficial. They want Jesus' death official. They want him cleared out of the obstacle that he's, he's becoming to them immediately. And so they're trying to get the Romans to help them. At the same time, the Romans are using the Jews. See, the Romans want to keep the status quo. There was this phrase um, called the Pax Roman. It's the peace of Rome. Part of what made the Roman Empire so great is they had established peace and stability through military conquest all over the known world. And so subsequently what they needed from their subjects was calm and peace. And so Pilate's in this negotiation. He's trying to keep the Jews happy especially around Passover when thousands of them are descending upon Jerusalem. But he's also trying to figure out what to do with this Jesus. Amidst all of this political posturing, John gives us some important insight into what's really going on. Look in your Bibles at verse 32. John says, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John makes it very clear that despite all the political maneuverings between the Jews and the Romans, God is actually the one guiding all of these events. In fact, I would say it this way, God is sovereignly guiding all of the things that are happening to lead to his desired objective. This is really important, because God's still doing this today. It's very easy to watch confirmation hearings of Supreme Court justices, or to watch health care bills rise and fall, and wonder, where is all this going? I don't know if you ever feel that way. I often watch things and go, this is so bizarre and so backwards and so dysfunctional. How are we ever going to move forward? How, how is this any kind of plan that's kind of systematically moving us forward? And it's easy to feel like things are just kind of out of control. But what you and I need to remember is that the same way that God is guiding all of these events during His Son's first entrance... God is sovereignly guiding all of the events to Christ's second entrance. You see, the first time Jesus enters Jerusalem, he enters on a donkey. He enters to them shouting, Hosanna, and laying palms at his feet. But the second time Jesus enters Jerusalem, he will enter on a white horse. And what you and I can know is that despite what confirmation hearings look like, despite what health care bill reform may be proposed next, what we can know is that God is sovereignly guiding things to his desired end. That's good news for you and for me because that means I can watch all that stuff and know this is somehow a part of God's plan. I don't understand it always. I can't always explain why things happen the way they do, but I can have a trust A confident assurance that God is sovereignly on his throne. Now, what John has done at this point is he's set the table. He's set the stage, as it were, for us to watch. Is God really the sovereign ruler? like he said in verse 32, or is it the Romans? I want you to watch in this second scene of the story how Jesus and Pilate begin to spar back and forth and how we see through their conversation who the true king really is. Look in your Bibles for this first kind of round of conversation between Pilate and Jesus in verse 33. I don't know if you could see the escalation between Pilate and Jesus, but Pilate's firing questions at Jesus about whether he's a king. Now, at first glance, that can appear a little odd. Why, why would Pilate ask Jesus if he's a king? And what you and I can interpret through the lines is, is probably a few things. One, Pilate probably had heard some things about Jesus. He knew He'd heard some things about what was going on with Christ. But probably more importantly, we know that for the Jews to ask for the death penalty, Jesus had to be asserting a certain authority that would be threatening to the Romans. You can get the peace of Rome going on right now. What their ears are going to perk up when they hear is if someone's a threat to their empire. And so he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus goes beyond all the surface level conversation and he puts his finger, he identifies the core issue that's going on driving a lot of these conversations. He says, listen, are you saying this or are you asking me this question because the Jews put you up to it? In other words, Jesus is asserting his knowledge and ability to understand the situation before Pilate he's asserting that he actually is the one in control of this engagement. Because while Pilate may be asking the questions, Jesus is really the one with all the answers. And so what happens is, Pilate gets more and more angry, but the point that that we've throughout this section is that Jesus, just like he did with the high priest, shows himself to be the true king. What I want to show you this morning is I want to show you three features of Christ's kingdom in this passage that show us that Jesus, not Caesar, is the true king. Okay, I want to show you how Jesus begins to answer these questions, how we see that Christ is in fact the true king and not the Romans. Number one, I want you to notice the origin of Christ's kingdom want you to notice the kingdom's origin. Look in your Bibles at verse 36 as he responds to Pilate's indignation. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus says that his kingdom is, its origin and authority don't come from this earth. Now that's important because every other kingdom, every other king has its authority derived from another earthly authority. From the Romans to the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, all of them were deriving their authority from an earthly kind of perspective. They were a descendant of a king or they were installed by another authority as king. But only Jesus could claim that his authority was non-earthly. It didn't come from the world. In fact, it came from the creator of the universe. That's important because the authority source points to the credibility of the power. If I tell you that your authority is based on the credibility of the person who gives it to you, that begins to make sense, right? We only understand authority being derived from someone who has the ability to give it. It's the difference between my seven-year-old asking me for $100 and the IRS asking me for $100. Okay? So imagine my seven-year-old, Seth, Walking up to me and say, "Daddy, I'd like hundred dollars." I go, okay, "Okay, great, Seth. What do you want a hundred dollars for?" And he ticks off some toys and maybe a donut or two that he wants, and he, he begins to to tick off seven year old things. And I say, "Well, you know, buddy, I just don't know that that's the best use of mommy and daddy's money. Maybe for your birthday or your Christmas, we can get something." And he looks at me and he stomps his feet and he says, "I want a hundred dollars now." Now, before I spank him, (laughs) I'm going to tell him, you don't have the authority to ask for that. Because where is Seth deriving his authority? From Seth. Seth thinks that he has the authority to ask me that, which is why parents, what we do in our house a lot, is I lean in really close and I whisper in their ear and I say, Hey, Seth, remind me who's in charge in our house. And with clenched teeth, they say, you are, Daddy. (laughs) Because sometimes I have to remind my kids that Mommy and Daddy are in charge. They don't have just this self-attesting authority from which all of us have to bow down. But on the other hand, if I go to my mailbox and get a letter from the IRS that says, Mr. Plumley," you're $100 short on your taxes. And if I said the same thing I said to Seth to them, I said, you know, that's your idea. That's really not how we're going to spend our money. And I ball up and throw it in the trash. I probably would get a second letter, wouldn't I? And in the second letter, I'd have a lot of bold print, <laughs> lawyers being mentioned, scary stuff like that. Why Because they have an authority that transcends just the letter. It's backed. It's coming from the federal government of the United States of America. The source of your authority speaks to the credibility of your authority. The authority source causes us to see a different credibility and power that that authority has. Now, what I want you to see is this. Jesus' source of authority is the highest court in the universe. He derives his authority from the Creator. He himself is God in the flesh. And so when Jesus says, My kingdom is not from this world, he's emphasizing the fact that the origin of his kingdom is otherworldly and is from God himself. So if it's Pilate, if it's the Jews, it doesn't matter what authority comes to Jesus, all of them are like Seth asking me for $100. They're not going to get anything from Jesus that he doesn't want to freely give them. This is important because it's easy as Jesus goes from trial to trial to think that, man, Jesus is just kind of getting swept away by all these authorities. No. Don't miss that one John wants us to see is that Jesus, though he may be bound physically, he's there by his own choice. So for for you and me, when it says his servants don't fight to defend his earthly kingdom, that's Jesus' way of saying, look, I'm here... Because I want to be here. If I didn't want to be here, I wouldn't be here. Christ is there because he knows what our redemption is going to cost. And so he offers his life in this way. First thing I want you to see about who the true king is, is the kingdom's origin. Second thing I want you to see is the kingdom's uh, purpose. Kingdom's purpose. Or excuse me, yeah, my notes are getting off. Purpose, there we go. Kingdom's Purpose. I you see the king's purpose. Pilate asks a question in return. Look at your Bibles in verse 37. So you are a king. He hears the word king. He hears Jesus talking about his kingdom, and so he lashes on to that. And then Jesus says, you can say that I am a king, but it was for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus starts by saying, listen, The way you think of me as a king is not really who I am. Just because you say that I'm a king kind of in the way you view it doesn't mean that that's true. And Jesus goes on to explain the purpose of his kingdom. The purpose of Christ's kingdom and him coming into this world is to bear witness to the truth. Now this is important because what Jesus is saying is this. While his kingdom is not of the world... His kingdom is in the world. You've heard that distinction maybe before. His kingdom is not of the world. It doesn't originate from the world. But its impact is making inroads in the world. The way Jesus' kingdom breaks into the world is through the witness he gives to truth. Now, we're living in a day when I have to define the word truth. So let me do that quickly. When I say the word truth and when the Bible talks about truth, it means a real state of affairs. It means that my statements correspond to reality. If something is true, what you're saying corresponds to the way things actually are. And what Jesus is saying is this, he's come to bear witness to the fact that the world that God has created is built on truth, both in the physical world, what we can see with our eyes as we observe things like gravity and the laws of nature, but also in the spiritual realm. Jesus is saying that there are spiritual truths, moral truths that are absolute around which this entire world is structured and built. And what you'll notice about our culture today is our culture is fine with the former, but not so much with the latter. Our culture is fine with saying that there are facts, there are truths about how this world works in the laws of nature. Where people begin to grow uncomfortable is when we say there are truths that relate to morality in the spiritual world as well. Let me give you an example. This past week, Time Magazine, the cover of Time Magazine is a question. And the question on the cover of Time Magazine was this. Is truth dead? Now, what's interesting is it was pointed out this past week by someone else. 51 years ago, almost to the date, Time Magazine asked another question. Does anybody remember what it was? Is God dead? I wasn't there, so I, I appreciate some of you helping me out with that. Is God dead? 51 years almost to the date, they ask, is truth dead? Now, if you read the article, you'll, you'll realize it's kind of a political hit piece where they're talking about how politicians today are finding it very convenient to deny certain facts or truths that they don't find convenient or helpful to their cause. And they're, and they're talking about the eroding trust in politicians, to which I say, duh, we've been there for a while. Newsflash, <laughs> uh, that's not a new phenomena. Uh, but th- they're talking about how this erosion of truth is, is is bringing about this erosion of trust. In the same magazine, flip it a few pages. There's an article about gender, and the article about gender. It's talking about how new generations are redesigning our understanding of gender. And they quote some crazy statistic like 20% of millennials don't understand themselves to be either male or female. They're transcending gender. And that gender is no longer binary, it's more of a continuum. That's kind of the way things are going. And here's what was crazy to me. How can the cover page lament the erosion of truth, only to have an article celebrating it. It's insanity. It, 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 our, our culture's going crazy because they can't see that we want morality to protect us, but not restrain us. This is the issue of our time. Let me say that again. We want morality to protect us, I don't want people shooting me, stealing from me, hurting me. I want laws to protect. It's wrong if you punch me in the nose. I want that. But I don't want morality to keep me from expressing myself, doing what I want to do, finding the truth self within me. And what Jesus is saying fundamentally is that the answer to your problems is not within you. The answer to life's greatest questions doesn't come from following your heart. The true answers to life come from knowing Jesus Christ. They come from outside us, not from within us. This is the worldview-altering question. What's your source of truth? It sounds really good in our culture when people say, follow your heart and you'll never go wrong to which we say, that's baloney. I had a professor that would say the Greek word for that is baloney. It's not true. But we've bought this lie that looking within us is where we find the answer. And Jesus says, actually, look back at your Bibles. Don't believe me. Look at what Jesus said. End of verse 37, I've come to bear witness to the truth. So what's the truth? The truth is that every human being is incredibly broken and in need of God's grace and healing and forgiveness. That's the truth. The truth is you were designed for worship and praise of King Jesus. That's why you exist. You were made and fashioned to live for his glory and his alone. And when we fight against that, when we leave God's design for which he's created us, the truth Jesus is bear witnessing, bearing witness to, we inevitably invite harm and danger and destruction into our lives. This is the kingdom's purpose. Why is Jesus' kingdom the true kingdom? Why is he the true king? Because his purpose is to bear witness to the truth. Lastly, I want you to see number three, I want you to see kingdom's result. Jesus has come, look at the end of verse 37, so that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The purpose of the kingdom results in men and women, boys and girls turning their lives over to Christ, turning from their sin and trusting Jesus. And here's how the kingdom of God breaks into this world. The kingdom of God breaks into this world every time a person turns from their sin and trusts Christ. How do you know where the kingdom of God is present? The kingdom of God is present where the king is currently reigning. And Jesus is saying, I have come to bring my kingdom into this world by bearing witness to the truth And as people surrender and submit to that truth, they experience the freedom of my kingdom. Here's the point that I think this passage is making King Jesus delivers you and delivers me into the freedom of truth. When we surrender, we submit to truth, we experience the freedom God has for us. We cannot experience freedom without surrender. Now, these two ideas are pretty counterintuitive. How does surrender and freedom, how do they work together? I was watching a uh, YouTube video uh, about an organization that goes and rescues dogs or animals that are in difficult positions. In the particular video I was watching, this organization went and found a dog that had been living on the streets of a large city for just years and the dog was filthy, it was covered with dirt from head to toe, and it was, you could see its ribs, it was malnourished, and the people were kind of cornering it because they were trying to help the dog. But with every step they took closer to this dog, the dog would snarl and, and snap its teeth, and drool was, was coming from its mouth, and it was just so angry because all it's known from human beings was abuse and harm. And so finally after time goes by, they finally get a leash out, Because the only way they're going to help this dog is if they can get a leash around his neck. As soon as someone went for this leash and began to move it toward the dog, it would snap its teeth and try to bite the person who had the leash in their hand. And time went by and time went by. And over time, the dog began to realize, these people aren't here to hurt me. They're here to help me. And so at one pivotal moment in this video, the dog lowers its head so they can get the leash on the dog, and they take him to a car, take him to a place where they get him all cleaned up, they cut off this filth from him, they, they begin to feed him, and they, and they fast forward the video a, two or three weeks ahead of time, and you see this dog running and jumping and playing and just being a dog, his tail's wagging everywhere, and he's, he's just so happy. And I watched that video, and I thought, that is the gospel. Because until you and I surrender to God's leash, until we surrender to God's authority, we never experience the freedom he has for us. Remember, especially those of you that are younger, freedom is not getting to do whatever you want to do. Freedom is getting to do what you were made to do. You were made to worship your king. And unless you surrender and submit to his love and authority in your life, you're never going to experience the purpose for which you were created. So let me ask you, have you come to a place in your life where you've surrendered to the freedom God has for you? Are you experiencing right now the joyful freedom that comes from submission and surrender to our King. Here's the reality. Every person one day is going to bow their knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. The question is not whether you're going to surrender. The question is, will you surrender while God's open extension of grace and forgiveness stands before you? The offer and the extension God gives to us of his grace is this life. When we die, when our lives end in this world, we face God either as his friend and his child or as a a rebel trusting ourselves. And if we do not surrender to God's freedom that he gives us, if we don't surrender to his authority, we stand before God guilty of insurrection, rebellion. Not one of outwardly, physically, through the authorities that we see in this world, but an insurrection and a rebellion of the heart. Until you and I surrender and put ourselves under God's authority, we never experience the freedom he offers us. This is why Pilate's question at the end is so important. Look at verse 38. Pilate said to him, What is truth? John, I think, finishes that scene of the story with that question because he wants us to realize that the accurate question is not, what is truth? The real question is, who is truth? He wants us to realize that Pilate has missed it totally. The truth that he's looking for is standing right before him. It's King Jesus. Now, some of you may be wondering, why should I believe in this King Jesus? Why should I surrender to him and not some other religion or some other ethical philosophy? Why should I submit to Jesus? I'm so glad you asked that. Look at the third and final scene of the story as Pilate tries to politically maneuver his way out of this. Second part of verse 38, notice how Pilate tries to get out of this. After he has said this, He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate, the consummate politician, tries one last-ditch effort to get what he believes to be an innocent man off the hook. And so he cites a custom. And the custom that Pilate cites was apparently during the Passover. It was customary for the Romans to try to curry favor with their people that they were ruling by releasing a prisoner around the time of the Passover. He tries to have Jesus released, but the people want nothing to do with Jesus. They instead... Ask for Barabbas to be released. Instead of the one who healed people, walked on water, raised the dead, they ask for a rebellious murderer. Now, what is John trying to show us here? If you look at this exchange through the lens of the Passover, it begins to make sense you'll remember that the Passover was the Old Testament celebration of the fact that God had released the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt and brought them into the the Promised Land. The way this happened, though, was that each Jewish family had to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood from that lamb, and wipe it on the doorpost of their house. And when that happened the death angel who took the firstborn of Egypt would pass over their homes. And so perpetually, the people celebrated the fact that the lamb died in place of their firstborn sons. Now here's what John wants us to see. Jesus Christ is the new Passover lamb because he takes our place. You say, well, I don't know why you're saying our. I'm not in this story. I can't find myself anywhere. Oh, yes, you are. You missed it. You and I are Barabbas. We're just like him. We're rebels, insurrectionists, murderers, not against the Roman authority, but against the true king of kings. That's Christ himself. And like Barabbas, all of us, Are worthy, have earned a sentence of death. What we read a few moments ago is that we've all had a wage given to us that we rightfully earn, and that's death. And the reason you should trust King Jesus and surrender your life to him is because he's the only one who's died for you. He's the only one that took your place. Because what we know is what happens with Barabbas is a picture of where this is all going. Jesus is going to the cross and he's going to the cross to take the penalty for you and for me and to die in our place and the three days later rise again. And when Jesus rises again, he says, I've made it possible for you to be forgiven. And my question stands, have you come to a place in your life where you've surrendered to King Jesus? Some of you need to surrender to King Jesus for the very first time today. You've never trusted Christ for salvation. Trusting Christ for salvation means that you understand that you're Barabbas, that you accept that you are an insurrectionist and a murderer at heart. Maybe you've not committed those acts outwardly, but in your heart, all of us have lied, we've stolen, we've been hateful towards others, we've wanted them dead, and what God says is that is just as if we've committed it ourselves. The Bible says that because of our sin, all of us are worthy of the sentence of death. And receiving Christ as your king, trusting him, bowing your knee to him, means you're saying, I've got a problem, and Jesus, you are the only solution. And so my challenge to you is this. If you've never surrendered to King Jesus, you will one day. Why not today? Bow your knee to Christ. No one else can save you from your sin. No one else can pay the penalty for what you've done. Only Jesus. But surrendering to Christ, please remember, sweet people, is not just for those of us here who are not Christians. Surrendering to Christ is something you and I get to do every day. You never experience the freedom of Christ without surrendering to Christ. Some of us this morning are surrendering to the wrong things. We're surrendering to a career that we think is going to bring us happiness and joy. We're surrendering to a person that we're just trying to keep happy and keep things going because we we get some kind of good feeling or some help from them. Some of us are surrendering to a certain status that we're trying to achieve in society, and we're going to give anything we can to get this because we know if we get it, it's going to make us happy. What you and I need to realize is you weren't created to do those things. The primary reason you exist is to praise your creator, and you cannot do that apart from surrendering to King Jesus. My prayer as we close is this. Church, remember who the true king is. It's King Jesus. And remember that only by surrendering to him can we enter into his freedom that he offers us. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, we thank you that Jesus is currently ruling and reigning this world. God, we thank you that that doesn't always mean that we'll understand how or why or when or where, but Lord, we know, we know that you are sovereignly guiding the events of this world to your desired end. When your sweet son returns and the sky is split, And he comes on that white horse to establish his rule and reign in a physical, visible way forever. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who's never surrendered to Christ. I pray that today you'd impress upon them that you indeed are the true king and all the other things they're surrendering to, you would show them the emptiness of those things and the beauty that is Jesus Christ. God, I pray for the believers in this room that we would be called to remember that Jesus indeed is our King, that we are servants and citizens in his kingdom. Would you help us live lives of submission and surrender as we bow our knee to King Jesus? I pray for people here today, Lord, who may be finding beauty and value and surrender in all the wrong places. I pray that you'd right now hold those things up to Christ and show how they pale in comparison to who he is and to what he's done for us. Lord God, help this place to be a place where we're serious about your kingdom as it breaks into this world in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. In Jesus' name, we pray these things.